0: Lucha-masks.com, powered by Pro Wrestling Revolution. You are listening to the Lucha Central Podcast Network, and now, LuchaCentral.com presents the business of the business.
1: Hey everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Business of the Business podcast. I am Kevin Kleinrock, President and COO of Masked Republic, and thank you for once again joining me on the only podcast dedicated to bringing you inside the world of how your favorite officially licensed merchandise gets made, with oftentimes a look at how that relates to the Lucha Libre and pro wrestling worlds and today I am extremely excited for my guest because not only uh, has he had one of the most prolific careers in terms of modern day professional wrestling related action figures and the licensing thereof starting with the WWE line at Jax, and with the now the uh, all elite wrestling line which launches nationwide in Walmart today. But beyond that, uh, just a really fascinating and and in my mind brilliant uh, businessman and uh, somebody who uh, is very wise. And I'm really looking forward to the conversation that uh, we're going to have today. And so uh, without further ado, my guest today uh, from Wicked Cool Toys, now part of Jazzwares, Jeremy Padower. with me right now i am very very excited to have jeremy padower as my guest today um for those of you familiar with this podcast because of the wrestling industry uh even if you don't know jeremy by name which many of you do probably uh you know his work you know his legendary jacks uh, wwe figures line you know of his current uh, AEW figures line, and we will get into all of that definitely uh, on the show today. But first, just thank you, Jeremy, for uh, for being here and uh, taking time out of your busy schedule to chat with us today on uh, business of the business.
2: Yeah, my pleasure. I'm thrilled to be here, Kevin. Uh, you know, you've got quite a portfolio of things that you've done in this business as well, and I'm really pleased and excited to be here with you today. Thank you. Uh, so, so I want to. I want to start way,
1: way beyond you ever when you ever first step foot in the toy business, because uh, I don't know how many people listening are on LinkedIn. Uh, and I know that I think you have maxed out of potential LinkedIn linked people uh, at <laughs> yeah. 30,000 or whatever, whatever their cap is. Um, <laughs> but I am consistently fascinated by uh, the stories that you tell on LinkedIn, the um You know, not just your approach to current day business and collectibles, which we'll certainly get into, but you have an extremely fascinating story of letters that you wrote as a child to famous folk. Um, And I wanted to know, I think seeing all that you've done in your career and seeing just um, to me what a brilliant businessman you are, uh, I think the motivation to get there has to start young in people. And so I wondered if you could indulge us for a few moments, um, telling a little bit of that story of the letters that you wrote as a child.
2: Absolutely. Well, thank you for all of that. You know, when I was a a little kid, uh, I lived uh, in Tennessee and Mississippi, and I felt a little disconnected from the things that I liked, from the brands that I liked. I didn't have professional sports. You know, we we did have professional wrestling, which was super fun um, for me. And so, through all of that, um, I will say that I had the opportunity to to have a lot of time to think about who I wanted to be and why. And uh, and so I thought, man, who could I ask? Who could I ask what this world is all about? Who could I ask? You know, what it takes to be memorable or what it takes to be you know uh, aspirational in life. And I thought, you know, who better to ask than the people who are the most known in the world. So I wrote a thousand letters uh, from the age of around 16 to 18 prior to going to college. And I wrote people like Mother Teresa and Jimmy Stewart and you know, Colin Powell and all of these political or religious or inspirational figures and some not so inspirational, some who just did, who are known for the worst things. And of the thousand letters, I heard back almost from 200 different people. And got original feedback. Um, And what I found was that, A, they're all just people. You know, they're all just people who are going through life with families and dysfunction and success. And what I found to be the thread that was the most noticeable thread throughout all the letters is that as these folks progress through their lives, Almost every single one of them pointed to family as their greatest accomplishment. Now, some were very focused on what they had done in this world. Um, some were very formulaic in terms of the way they approached it. Some just sent an autograph. But for the most part, it was all about family. It was all about. It was all about. If you were talking about career, it was all about crazy passion. And I took that with me. You know, I realized, okay, you know what? I don't. It doesn't matter if I'm from Mississippi or Tennessee. What matters is what I want to do and what I want to accomplish in my life, and uh, and I took that approach and I followed things that I felt passionate about. And those letters I still have, and they mean the world to me uh, in terms of understanding how they shaped, you know, what what I've managed to do with my career.
1: That's that's amazing. Um, it, I think for me, my biggest accomplishment was writing a letter to Inside Wrestling Magazine and getting it printed inside uh, in in the magazine. But that's uh,
2: that's huge. Are you kidding me? I yeah, been-
1: I, it, w- it was funny. I think I had, back in the day, I think I had two letters written in the you know Pro Wrestling Illustrated after Mags. Uh, one of them I had sent in on my own, and then the other, I don't remember what grade it was. Maybe it was 7th grade, maybe it was oh, 11th grade, something. We had an English assignment, which was to try to write a letter and get it published in a magazine. And uh, I happened to pull that one off, so
2: <laughs> that was... Uh,
1: uh it, yeah, the, i remember the one of the letters is very very embarrassing right now because it's about like how the ultimate warrior wasn't being treated fairly or something like that but um you know uh-huh. back, back in my youth uh you know it, it was pretty cool I, um i think i think warrior uh might have agreed with you yeah uh <laughs> back I don't, I don't remember but um so uh, so what when when you were growing up you're you know you're you become inspired. You know you're gonna you know take these lessons with you. But before you got into the toy industry, was was that something that you had wanted to do from a young age, or how did that passion develop?
2: You know, I didn't know. I mean i i, I loved I loved collectibles. You know, so so many of us feel a connection to collectibles and and really have that philosophy. We're very transactional in nature, and we love the brands we love, and we want to be inspired by them and see them and have a piece of them every day. Um and that's a great outlet for so many of us, including me. Um, so I knew that. Um, but I also didn't have you know a lot of money and uh you know I had to focus on uh my path, which was education. So I spent a lot of time in school and I did a, a JD MBA and uh but during law school, my first days of law school, I can tell you, I I recognized just how bad I was at law school. In fact, I <laughs> suck. <laughs> I was, I was literally the least interested person in the class. So I, I got to figure out a way to earn some money. And so during the day I go to law school, uh, at night I, uh, started, uh, uh, an internet company and what it was, was essentially faking out Yahoo. So I created a series of websites, um, and named them with two A's, uh, around collectibles and toys that I love. So absolute Beanie Babies, absolute Furby, absolute this, absolute that. It like 1996, 1997. It's the old phone book trick, right? Phone book trick because Yahoo was nothing more than a phone book. It was like an A to Z. There was no algorithm. It was literally a disaster. And uh, it allowed little sh- you know, schmucks like myself to exploit it. So I exploited the phone book like so many people have learned to do over the years. And after six months, I had like 15,000, 20,000 people a day coming through this network. Wow. Um, and I had some great coverage from Newsweek and some other sources. My my programming, my HTML source code was terrible. the The website uh, engagement was pretty awful. Uh, but I had great advertisers. And then I started taking that money and putting it in things like domain names, generic domain names, because my mindset was, hey, you know, people really like to visit uh, websites, and one of the easiest ways to do that is is through direct navigation. And so anyways, not to put everyone to sleep, but I, uh, I made some serious cash with domain names and generic names. I mean, act.com, I paid $1,000 for it in 1990, whatever, seven or eight, and I sold it the next year for 500 times return. Wow! And keep in mind, I'm 23 years old at the time. I, and so I, I wasn't broke anymore in <laughs> school. And then at a law school, I realized, you know what? I suck at being a lawyer. Uh, I'll always have this knowledge. So I got recruited to Vanderbilt to go to business school and they, they gave me a scholarship. They're like, you know what, what you're doing is fascinating. So again, followed my passions, a little bit of desperation, I'll admit, but also passions paid off. Uh, and then having that background in online toy oriented stuff was a pretty interesting path to Mattel for me. And so that kind of uh, paved the way and it, it went from there.
1: The, the law school thing's fascinating for me because that was my path as well um <laughs> you know, i i diverged when i got those law school acceptance letters i diverged straight to pro wrestling and didn't go the law school route um but most days i think so some days i wonder and now i've 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 picked up enough knowledge to, uh, not be a, an, an attorney or a lawyer, but do, uh, do enough of my own, uh, legal work or, you know, that for others. So, um, but that, that, that's absolutely fascinating. And then parlaying that into, into business school. And then, like you said, to Mattel, so you got to Mattel, um, and what were some of the lines that you were working on first at Mattel? I think Hot Wheels was that one? Yeah. Of them?
2: So I started at Mattel and Hot Wheels and uh, progressed from there over to entertainment brands. But interestingly enough, so I'm on Hot Wheels and I had never presented. I was always very outgoing and I was always good at communicating, uh, but I didn't have any formal presentation experience. So our first presentation with Hot Wheels, um, I decided in front of Kroger, uh, the grocery store, that I was going to be a mad scientist. (laughs) Now, I wasn't wearing any mad scientist coat. And I didn't have any indicator of being a mad scientist, and so uh, I believe my buddy Michael Bernstein was per, was uh, was doing this with me. And and Michael was like, we were talking about something called kit racing, which were these vehicles that you could um, basically customize for some sort of performance variable out of Japan. They were cool, and he was like, hey, I'm gonna customize the wheels, and I'll have this at performance. Out- what are you gonna do, Jeremy? And I was like, I'm gonna, right? So. <laughs> I pretty much got fired off of Hot Wheels after about a week. And then, uh, but, but you know, there were other people there, a guy named Jeff Walker, who was later basically the president of Mattel. He was like, he's like, put our, you got to come over to the entertainment group. And I was like, sweet. So <laughs> that really opened it up. So I went from Hot Wheels to uh, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. And I, because I had that internet background, I knew to dive directly in with that crowd. And uh, so I went to He-Man.org. Identify that they were like the number one, you know, masters universe website. So we 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 also launched some of the first ever Exclusives at comic-con and I think it was 2000 whatever it was 2001 Um, And then picked up some Nickelodeon brands and just had a very interesting experience at Mattel But then you know this upstart toy company Jax um, Was you know in an interesting position And we'll be back in just a few moments as we get into Jeremy's
1: move over to Jax and his development of the game-changing WWF Classics toy line, plus his recent uh, Pokemon purchase, a record-breaking purchase, I do believe, as well as we get into what a lot of people listening today are probably here for, which is to talk about the brand-new All Elite Wrestling action figure line what is coming out today and what is to come in the future so stick around but right now we're going to head over to lucha central central to hear about all the other great shows on the lucha central podcast network this week with denise salcedo hey
0: everyone it's denise salcedo here in lucha central central with a reminder of where and when to catch your favorite shows each week or when to try a new one, we've got a brand new video series kicking off this Sunday as photographer Jerry Villagrana debuts Photo Versus exclusively on the Lucha Central Facebook page. On each episode, Jerry and a fellow photographer go mano a mano comparing and sharing stories behind some of their most memorable photos. This week, Jerry welcomed Josh Garcia of Rudo's Photo as they explored shots of Rey Mysterio. And this coming Sunday, Black Terry Jr. joins the show and he and Jerry share photos of their favorite lucha dives. Don't miss the show. Sundays at 7 p.m. Pacific, 10 p.m. Eastern. Only at facebook.com slash lucha central. Monday, it's an elite episode of Business of the Business as Kevin welcomes the man behind the new AEW action figure line, Jeremy Hadower, to the show to talk about writing letters to 1,000 famous people as a kid, getting into the toy business, creating the Jacks WWF classic line, his recent record breaking Pokemon card purchase, and, of course, the launch of AEW. Figures and collectibles line. On Tuesday, Mass Mats and Mayhem gets a visit from El Inframundo when AAA and Lucha Underground star Drago stops by. Plus, the gang chops it up about the possibility of Mil Muertes in AEW, former Lucha Underground stars that are making waves, new additions to the Walls of Fame and Shame, and much more. Check out the premiere video stream every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Lucha Central YouTube channel and at luchacentral.com. Then listen to it on your favorite podcast platform every Wednesday. This Tuesday night live on WrestleBossLive.com, Fabi Chulo is back with Lucha Underground and Lucha Baboom's Mariachi Loco and the Crash Lucha Libre's Mecca Woof. Call in live to ask questions Tuesday nights at 7 p.m. Pacific or download the show on podcast platforms on Wednesdays. Wednesday nights live on Facebook, it's Spanish show La Mesa de los Margaros, giving you both the news and the chisme from around the lucha world. Special guests and a whole lot of fun make it one of the most talked about shows in Mexico. Find the video version on Facebook Wednesday through Friday and then Saturdays download the audio version in podcast form. Thursdays, it's straight out of the bodega with Papo Esco and PWR promoter Gabriel Ramirez. This week, Los Angeles Misterioso pulls up to talk shop about his start in Lucha Libre, controversy surrounding the Misterioso name, and his rise to the independent scene, including international trips to Mexico, China, and Japan for Dragon Gate, plus working for New Japan here in the U.S. On Friday, it's your double dose of Lucha Central Weekly Podcast, one in English y el otro in Español. Lucha Central Weekly is where you'll find all the top stories of the week, both inside and out of the ring from Mexico and anywhere luchadores are in action across the globe. This week, both shows take a look back at Grand Metalique's biggest WWE match to date as he took on AJ Styles last Friday night on SmackDown, plus... Lucha Times' latest news, including their alliance with DTU. Catch up on the top stories of the entire week in Lucha Libre in just 90 minutes. Be sure to subscribe and follow all your favorite Lucha Central Network series on your favorite podcast platforms. And please be sure to give a rating and review to help more fans find the shows that you love. For now, this is Denise Salcedo signing off from Lucha Central Central. Have a great week.
2: You know, this upstart toy company, Jax, um, was, you know, in an interesting position. It was after the Attitude Era in WWE, and they basically needed to take a different approach with some of the boys' properties they had, one of them being WWE. And um, WWE was struggling because the Attitude Era was a very uh, amazing era, but you could pretty much sell anything with the WWE logo. Um, and we just took a different approach. We turned it into a collectible versus a kid's toy. And we made uh, classic superstars and, and really approached it very differently than it had been approached before.
1: So uh, taking a step back to uh, Mattel real quick and kind yeah. of, you know, w- on this show, we like to talk a little bit about the actual uh, kind of process of creating these uh, officially licensed um, yeah. you know products. And so when you're at Mattel and you're working with, let's say the Masters of the Universe brand, yeah um, you're dealing with characters that obviously have history and they have you know a, a brand manager of sorts who's making sure that they are represented properly, but you're not dealing with living breathing human beings um so what was what were what were some of the kind of um easier points and maybe some of the harder points of dealing with uh fully original, I guess you would say uh you know i p that you were creating collectibles for
2: well, um I'll say this uh, the The idea of working on your own brands um is in so many ways easier uh, what, you know number one, there is no third party that can control the creative uh whatever you come up with is the direction you can go in um but it's also extremely difficult. Because there's no one giving you a roadmap, you know. Sure. So that's it's a very interesting give and take. Um, but I, it was a great time, and you know, we were able to relaunch it. And I will say that it wasn't perfect. We made every possible mistake. Uh, we took a very, I would say, traditional, almost like a God. What's the best way to put it? Like a like a Barbie approach. I mean, basically, where most of the line is Barbie, and she has a couple friends. Right. Um, instead of, so we, we made He-Man and Skeletor be like 65% of the assortment, which was 100% the wrong thing to do. That was driven by upper management. That was so frustrating because in 1983, they did it the right way when they launched a very broad line of Masters of Universe. And I think everybody that was at Mattel at the time, uh, in the early, uh, 2000s, uh, 2000, 2001 would, would agree and admit, like, we just... We just could have done a different job. And if we would have launched it much the way they did in 83, um, it would have lasted for many, many years.
1: Now, when you guys were launching it at Mattel, was there uh, an, an entertainment series or a publishing series that went with it? Or was it purely? Yeah, we created it.
2: We created it. It. So we created, we created the, the entertainment series. We created the toys. We did them all in conjunction. We did it with Mike Young Productions. Uh, Mike Young's still around to this day. He's really great guy. Um, and, uh, no, it was, uh, it was truly a blast and what an amazing experience. I mean, to be, you know, a couple years into working for a toy uh, company and to be creating a series on behalf of, at the time, the biggest toy company in the world, like what an amazing responsibility. And I would say a lot of love went into it and there was a tremendous amount of acceptance from the collector community. And, um, the show was really good. Uh, Frankly speaking, um, the two things we could have done differently is manage the mix very differently. And I'll bet you when they relaunch Masters, they'll do a much different approach, much more like the 83 approach. And the second thing is the entertainment. We were very um, cerebral. Uh, The storyline was a story arc that if you followed episode one, two, three, you'd understand four, five, six, which, by the way, ironically, today works (laughs) fantastically because you've got things like streaming and Netflix and all these other things. Whereas back in the day, you'd have to be like, well, what was last week about all, all," you know, it's just a different era. So you can be a little bit more intellectual, even with kids programming. Uh, But we were a little ahead of ourselves there.
1: Uh, You know, one thing that I noticed with the toy and collector community, and, you know, I don't know what it's like behind the scenes, but at least in front of the cameras, it seems like there's a really strong camaraderie. Uh, you know, whether it's from Comic-Con panels, uh, like I, I saw you on last year, or um, just the the business in general. And maybe it's because it's so many passionate people about the same things. But, you know, when you see a company like Super 7, who then did the mo- most modern until now, you know, going back to Mattel um, version of a Master of the Universe and, and, and He-Man, uh, you know, do you look back um, and go, man, I wish that could have been what we did? Is it more like Guess. Thankfully, somebody picked up the the brand, and they're doing it. You know, right now, kind of what's that? You know, give and take. I guess uh, of the way that these some of these IPs you know switch from from
2: ownership and and management. Um, you know, I I I will say that I you know from from my perspective, I I just look at these, I look at the brands, and I, I'll just say that there's no there's no one perfect way to do things. Uh. I, I don't know if this answers your question directly, but I'll give you an analogy, okay so you've got you've got uh, oh gosh, what's his name? The guy that used to be in the daily show. What was the guy's name John Stewart yeah. you got John Stewart. John Stewart's a comedian. John Stewart's out there doing a set. He works so hard he put he he spends so much time putting these sets together. Um, and then you have guys out there who are off the cuff. They literally do comedy in the moment. Uh, and who's better or who's, who does a better job? Neither. It's just their style. You know what I mean? So you yeah. got, so you've got one comedian running after another. Neither of them have the exact same style. Neither of them have the same process, but the outcome is equally delightful. And I think I see the same thing in toys. Like, there's not one perfect way to do it. One company's may be, one company's culture may be to really be the most prepared culture in the world. Well, if you're the most prepared culture in the world, maybe you're missing things like trends. You're missing things like keeping your eyes open and taking a deep breath. And 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 what does it mean if you're open to the fact that the flowers are, are bright? Does that open your creative juices a little bit more than knowing absolutely everything about the thing? Maybe. All I'm saying is there's just no perfect way. There's no one way. um, And there's only the way that suits your particular uh, organization and culture. That seems to be a A good analogy. Um, So you move
1: over to Jax. And so is is the WWE line the first uh, real line that you dealt with at Jax?
2: Oh, sorry, Kevin, you looked out there.
1: Um, the uh, you moved over to Jax and was the WWE line the first line that you dealt with at Jax
2: so no I, I moved to Jax because they gave me the opportunity to head up the entire division so I had um, WWE, Dragon Ball Z uh, I had a whole bunch of brands, Van Helsing, Classic Monsters from Universal, Yu Yu Hakusho uh, so on and so forth uh, but only a few of them really stuck like Dragon Ball and, and uh, WWE stuck. And then we brought Pokemon on after a few years. Um, But WWE was my, was my heart and soul and growing that business from 18 million. um, And, you know, to, to hundred plus million. Wow. uh, That was, that was a big deal. I mean, these were, these are the numbers that are, that are in NPD. And so you can go and publicly see them, but, no, it was a big deal. It took it took seven years to grow that business, and we did it piece by piece by basically recognizing that there needed to be a channel strategy: um, grocery and drug, dollar store, mass market, big box, and that everybody really needed to have something of meaning. And we were able to continue to do that. You know, there was a guy named Peter Peter Skortis that headed up our design, and he was super duper passionate. Um, but then the second thing is we we needed the right Uh, not just distribution strategy, but we need the right strategy in terms of who the consumer was. Because the consumer wasn't necessarily a little kid who just happened to like The Rock or Steve Austin. The consumer was now a more mature uh, collector. And so the Classic Superstar Series was born, and uh, that was one of the coolest runs of all time.
1: So now you're going from dealing with, uh, you know, a a brand that you have complete control over or a lot of creative say in to not only a brand that is a straight licensing deal but there is a real life breathing human being uh on the end of that as well and so you have to please not only wwe itself but the performer as well probably on some level um so what was that transition kind of like for you in terms of now having to deal with these
2: actual uh humans that you are licensing. Well I liked them. I liked all the humans. I mean, here's the thing. It's one thing if you're dealing with a bunch of people that you don't understand or that you can't relate to. It makes it so easy when you're dealing with something that you can immediately relate to. And so the conversations that we were having, there wasn't like much of a feeling out phase. You know, in the first conversation, if I'm telling you that when I was 10 years old, uh I went to the Coliseum in Mississippi, Columbus, Mississippi, and I waited with my Polaroid camera as Ric Flair opened up the curtains. And the moment Ric Flair opened up the curtains, I shot the picture, blinded Ric Flair, and he moved his hands, thrust his hands forward, and he hit me on accident because I'm a kid. And I fell backwards and and snapped a second shot where you could literally see his hand in the camera. And... That was one of the greatest moments of my life. I mean, so like, you know, when you communicate these stories and you communicate that, listen, uh, you know, my philosophy coming in was that we wanted to take a lot of care to make the best figures of all time. And, you know, specifically, we wanted to celebrate their uh, catalog of characters. Uh, And it was interesting because Vince McMahon at the time didn't really have a alumni roster. And nor did he really, you know, if you weren't on the roster, you kind of weren't part of the universe. There wasn't a
1: Legends roster at
2: that point. Not at all. Not at all. So what I had proposed was, listen, A, you should have a Legends roster. But B, you can't be the tail wagging the dog. So here's the next best thing. Um, And so what I did was I I said, listen, let us go sign individual classics, superstars, or, or guys. And men and women, and if they sign a deal, or you ever come up with a, a uh, alumni roster deal, then we will lose our rights to WWE, but retain the ability to make the figures. So there's no loss for you. So Vince McMahon's like, "Yeah, that's a good idea. I'll do it. I'll do it. Let's do it." And so he did it. Uh, they approved it. They rubber stamped it. And to show how serious. They were, and we were. We were able to get Bret the Hitman Hart and uh, Ultimate Warrior in Wave One. Go figure that. That's, I mean, when you yeah. think about the what that means, it was pretty dramatic because there were issues. But you know, Vince McMahon says whatever's best for business, and I think he means it. I mean, he certainly proved that. I, I, things would have been very, very different if they had said, "Nah, we'll pass on that. We want to focus on the current roster." which they could have very easily done. Um, We would have never been able to turn the brand around in that regard ever if that had happened.
1: And so I I know that different figures have different, um, I guess, uh, ways in which they're, they're put together. And you guys, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, were the first ones to, at some point, start that real scan technology Uh where you were actually scanning the faces. Um, So what was, I guess walk me a little bit through before that, um, kind of the process of how you worked with, from your content. okay, we're going to get Brett or we're going to get Warrior or we're going to get whoever, and what are kind of some of the key parts of that process of going from the, the thought you're going to use this wrestler to getting that toy created and ready and approved?
2: Well, you know, it is a process. I mean, the first thing that you do For me, the first thing I did was I had befriended uh, Ringside Collectibles and Jonathan Piankowski over there, and I basically said, uh, let's do something very dramatic where it's going to take hours for people to fill this out. But we uh, put together a list of like 300 former wrestlers, uh, regional and WWE and non-WWE, and we asked consumers to provide their basically – basically mark from 5 to 1 5 meaning they wanted that person the most 1 meaning the least all 300 wow and we got back thousands of responses thousands and we were able to rank every single character by the uh desire of the consumer wow and by doing that it put us in a situation where we knew okay, we've got now 20 of the top 23. We've got now 90 of the top 100. Um, that was a lot of, it was very cool. So we used that to start doing deals. And we did deals for the next you know, seven years from 2000, basically two or three to 2009. And then in 2010, of course, it went to Mattel.
1: And so once you brought somebody in uh, you know a Brett uh, anybody um you had your your concept sketches that were drawn up at what point were you having to go to the WWE for feedback at what point were you going to the wrestler for feedback was was WWE signing off on their behalf or where was the interaction
2: and the approvals so so we would I uh, I would say that the the approvals from the former superstars themselves were pretty minimal uh in fact, they sort of recognized that the approval process was through w w e and not really them. There was only a couple like Ultimate warrior that reserved the rights to make their own approvals. but I think for the most part, they all agreed like we're not going to necessarily be a part of the approval process so we 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 made it we we made that a very easy bar for us to leap over right. um, and so when it came to w w e, it was simply uh the normal approval process. You would submit. Um, they would give you concept approval, and once you had concept approval, you would then take it to a basically 2D form, and then they would approve the 2D sc- 2D basically pre-sculpt, and then they would approve the 3D sculpt, and then they would approve the paint. So basically, a four-part process, and that process occurs over the course of many months uh, from concept to um, final you know, paint, paint master.
1: And so at some point, you get this uh, real scan technology in there. Um, yeah. How how did that kind of change the, the game for the production side of things? And why today do we still see some that kind of take advantage of that technology and others that, that don't?
2: You know, I don't know. I can't speak for everyone. Um, i like it I'm, I'm a big fan of real skin uh, technology you know we when we started it we that was part of the mantra that we wanted to have the most realistic action figures ever and so attaching this technology to it did actually allow us to up our game and to have a much more realistic figure um, with that said you know there is certain limitations to capturing likeness and the even the machines at the time were just they were slow. They were huge. They were this, you'd sit in literally a room and this machine would go around you. Now it's like ridiculous. Now you can take a 1,600 images in a few seconds and just and capture likeness extremely well. But so we would have, we'd capture likeness and then we'd have a sculptor clean it up. Um, it's more expensive than a normal process, I think, but I think it's also worth it.
1: Interesting. And so, looking back at the at the Jacks line overall and the classic line, what were what are a few of your highlights or your favorite figures that, that I'm sure they're all they're all like your children. They are, everyone has a place in your heart. But what were some of the uh, your favorites uh, you know, that, that, that maybe still sit on your shelf today as as testaments to you know some of the best that you worked on?
2: Uh, look, I mean, I loved I loved Ric Flair um as a kid and i still think he's the best so we did a red robe rick flair we did a pink one i believe that was part of a promotional program we did a white robe with rick flair that was an employee edition i loved all of those Um, some of the early hogan stuff i really liked a lot too Um, we did a hogan that was part of a continuity program that you had to collect all i think 20 uh wrestlemania tickets that we recreated and if you create, collected all 20 tickets, you sit them in, you got the Hogan, um, Andy Kaufman, uh, the Andy Kaufman, the Jerry Lawler, two pack was one of the greatest things that, you know, we ever did. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I also liked some of the lesser known talent that we celebrated and we did celebrate quite a few of the lesser known talent. And, you know, for me, that was always really great because they were so pleased and it would give them something to sign at events and would help them in terms of relevance. And, uh, frankly speaking, uh, those were some of the best phone calls. Um, you know, uh, whether it was a ring announcer or whether it was someone who was more of a regional star that never necessarily made it to the big, uh, screen. Um, that was just great times.
1: I think that, you know, for us and the legends of Lucha Libre line that we're getting ready to come out with, um, you know, we've got basically two different levels or two different types of, of stars that we work with at Master Public. We've got our icons and legends, uh, and then we've got our you know current superstars. But for a lot of these icons and legends, they've either never had an action figure done, a real non bootleg Mexican you know action figure done, right. uh, or they, like a like a Conan, yeah, he, he hasn't had a figure um, of his of his original wrestling persona with the mask and everything ever done. You know by the time AAA got into toys uh you know he was already unmasked and so I think looking back and, and doing some of these classic figures and and giving a lot of these legends who never had a figure a figure is gonna be something really special um so I totally okay. get that one um, one of the things I want to touch on two things real quick before we move on yeah. from jack's um you mentioned those uh, kind of employee editions and yeah. you know while I collected as a kid and then I kind of fell out of the wrestling collecting for for quite some time i'll pick up uh you know if, the, if a wrestler's been on one of my productions or something like the wrestlers if, if you were in wsx and then you went on to wwe or elsewhere and there's a toy of you i'm gonna i'm gonna pick up that figure um i collect ray mysterio figures just because one i've always been a big fan of ray uh, and two he's got so many amazing figures uh and and looks um but now, over the last kind of year or so, as we've Master Public gotten into the toys and collectibles business, I'm really paying attention to more things. You know, listening to podcasts like the you know major, major figure uh, wrestling podcast and and fully poseable. And there seems to be quite a demand now for collecting these uh, these employee exclusives and these one of you know one of fives, one of twenty five, one of five hundred. Sure. Um, I mean, back when you were creating these, obviously your brain has always been hardwired for collectibles yeah. and collectibility. But um, did you at that moment think that they were going to become this this valuable and, and chased? You know, t- fifteen years later, or was it really just a thought of these are these are for our our employees and these are no, for, no. you know special folk?
2: No, I knew right away. No, I mean, look, I I like driving people nuts. Oh, I, I always have. I, I feel like. An engaged collector, even an enraged collector, is better than one that's asleep. So um, I, I, I never was too worried that it would frustrate people. I, I always recognized that in the long run, it would make every other figure in the assortment more valuable. So here we are, you know, fifteen years later, twenty years later, and almost any one of those mint on card classic superstars. Is valuable or has some value. Guess what? If we hadn't done the super limited edition, where it was engaging people in the thousands and thousands of dollars, even though it was a little small piece of plastic, I don't necessarily think there would be that much as much value placed on the lower edition product. So I I, re- I am a big fan of macroeconomics, and a lot of the decisions that I make are based on macroeconomic principles. So. No, I think it was a favor to do those super limited edition items, and when you do that and you appeal to very serious collectors, it it raises the bar for the entire collection. And so, no, I I had a really good sense of that um, when when we were doing it. Great. So, one other topic related
1: to Jax, um, you know, there I think again, I think probably in part because of uh, major figures uh, guys, but there has been this revived love for the stomp line. (laughs) And I, I personally, I I went to my shed, my wife made me get a shed for all my wrestling magazines, uh, t-shirts and and figures and stuff. So I went to the shed the other day, uh, looking for something else uh, and found my box of, of Jack's classics and found my Brian Pillman stomp uh, figure that I bought back in the day. Um, uh, But, I feel like back then, maybe that line wasn't as well received as um, people had hoped. Uh, but I, b- having grown up with G.I. Joe being the first thing I ever, and really the only thing I ever collected, um, I love the line because it had that feeling of, of WWE meets G.I. Joe. What was, uh what was the, kind of the thought process be- be behind getting that line together? And um, does, the, does the retro interest in that line surprise you at all?
2: No, not at all. Uh, Honestly, I retro just means that someone at one point had an emotional attachment to a brand and now they're older. So, no, there's no there's no retro line where people celebrated the line as kids. That surprises me. In fact, I think they're all open season. If you had kids that loved something. That makes sense. That makes sense.
1: So before we get into uh, modern day and the AEW launch, which actually uh, on the day that this show drops will be available in Walmart. So very excited about that. Um, awesome. I, I want to talk real quick about your other collectible um, your other collectible experiences and what's going on right now with you, specifically the recent Pokemon purchase um, that yeah. made headlines uh, all over the world. Um, you you are you became very passionate about Pokemon. Uh, obviously, I mean, long ago because you've you've been part of the actual Pokemon uh, licensed products for cool. for many years. But um, at what point did it dawn on you that the Pokemon cards themselves, were something to watch, keep, hold on to, and invest in?
2: So it dawned on me a long time ago, uh, but I didn't start participating until relatively recently, which my timing was still good because things have blown up in the last you know, six months. Um, essentially, here's my mentality. Um, Pokemon was launched in the United States in the late 90s, Uh, which is a little over 20 years ago, 21 years ago, which kids at the time were 6 to 10 years old. Now they're 27 to 31, 32 years old. Their proximity to capital is increasing by the day. Their careers are taking off. Some of them have had tremendous careers. Some of them have inherited money. Some of them have done various other things to have more proximity to capital. Uh, Some of them just influence people that have proximity to capital. I mean, again, more macroeconomic principles. But... What happens is, again, that lifelong love for something that doesn't go away, that they grow with, much like wrestling fans, um, is associated with this brand uh, that are about Pokemon, uh, essentially little monsters that, are your, that, that you can control and you can battle. Um, it just so happens to be that Pokemon is the number one entertainment property of all time. Uh, the number two is Star Wars. Star Wars has done about $50 billion in 40 years. Pokemon's done 90 billion in around 20-something years. Shocking, Thank you. right? Thank you. So um, I first got involved with Pokemon in 2006. Uh, they were uh, still with Hasbro, and we we got the license. We, we invested deeply into driving that brand. And then uh, in 2016... Um, Uh, they were looking for a new uh, global licensee and, um, you know, wicked cool toys was, you know, I was a partner in that company. we you know, had a few years under our belt and they granted us the global license, uh, and invested in the company. They believed in us, uh, you know, that, that, uh, that spirit that they have as an organization, um, is, is real. Uh, you know, it's a consortium in a sense of multiple companies that, now has its own standalone company with its own culture and um and but they understand the idea of investing in in partners and they did and and wow what an amazing timing because Pokemon Go is just launching so i have a lifelong indebtedness to pokemon uh for their generosity and their and their belief in me uh and and our team and my business partners and then in 2019 october you know we we um sold Wicked Cool Toys to Jazzwares, and now we've partnered with them, um, and continue to help manage and drive that business. Uh, but yeah, no, I, my belief in Pokemon has everything to do with the age demographic, the size of the business, and then my personal, um, love for the people and for the brand. And, um, so you're referring to, I made a purchase, uh, Uh, The perfect PSA 10 set, which means every single card of the 1999 set, first edition Shadowless set was in perfect PSA 10 condition, paid $129,000 for it. Um, I would say here we are several months later, and you couldn't touch that set for $200,000. There's there's only uh, 11 of them that are registered. And uh, if I can ever get back to my uh, safety deposit box, maybe I'll see it again.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and uh, it's just fascinating um, because I also, and again, I, I know you, you post, I think on, on Instagram as well, you post a lot of, um, kind of the, the same collectible philosophy and, and it really, in the last couple of months and weeks, I, I've noticed a lot more, you know, you're explaining the value of the Pokemon cards and what you think this is worth and what you think that is worth and, and as well with, um, some other sports cards. I know that right now, uh, there's a, an unopened case of basketball cards, um, uh, that's, I think, up at auction now for over a million
2: dollars that you've been yeah. tracking. Yes, there's a 1986 FLIR case, which means there's 12 boxes, and I believe my last check is, is like a was 1.3, 1.4 million dollars. Now let me just kind of put this in perspective. In 1990, those boxes, the boxes that are selling for around 110 thousand dollars each, those boxes were on closeout. For around five dollars a box. Wow. Uh, by 1992, and I made a bit eighty nine, but by 1991, 1992, when I was a senior in high school, um, you were going to card shows and seeing those boxes. The packs were selling for fifty bucks each. Wow. So we went from five dollars a box to eighteen hundred dollars a box, um, and now these same boxes are selling for an enormous hundred and something thousand dollars a box. So the case is twelve boxes. It's an amazing uh, find that they, they have there.
1: And the key, the key to those is uh,
2: what, what cards? Which well, card? it's Michael Jordan's 86 Fleer rookie card. Okay. And that is the driver. And basically, uh, PSA 10 Jordan rookie card 86 goes for about $65,000, $70,000. Wow. And in this case, you're probably going to pull like 40 of them. Wow. So, and that it, that goes without saying. There's also a Jordan stickers, and there's also all the other major... Uh, NBA athletes in that set. So you take it all together. And um, if every single card graded at a PSA 10, uh, you have an enormous value. But the truth is, most cards don't. So w- the Jordans, let's just say that 10%, 20% of them grade as a PSA 10, that would be eight, eight times call it $70,000, There's $600,000, basically, in eight cards the question is, is everything else worth $900,000? And I don't know. I mean, honestly, it's, I I think that someone buys it and doesn't open it and they just keep it as a museum piece because it may be the only case, you know, left in the world unopened. Wow. That is certainly worth more than the uh,
1: unopened AAA 1994 action figure cases we found. But uh yeah wow that's just incredible so um we'll give all your social media away at the end and we'll put it in the comments but if you are into just the economics of collecting i can't encourage you to uh enough to follow jeremy just for his insight on these things so let's jump into i guess the the main event here what uh, a lot of people listening today probably really want to hear about which is uh so i shortly after the beginning of aew uh, I was on the phone with their uh, this head of licensing, Mark, and he mentioned that they had they had put together an action figure deal and, you know, couldn't tell me what. And uh, But in my mind, the back of my head, I said, you know, I bet it's Jeremy. He's uh, <laughs> passionate it, about wrestling. He doesn't have a toy line now. And, you know, it would be in really good hands with him. So uh, now that it's all public and it's, it's in stores uh, today, how did that all get put together? And uh, yeah, I guess for first let's let's start there. How did you become the official toy licensor of the hot new all elite wrestling?
2: Well, you know, first of all, I'm going to tell you the story that I can tell you. Okay, the story that I can tell you is that there there there's little there's little birdies out there that are willing to make connections, and they're some of the best people ever. Um, but without going into details, because I can't reveal. Which birdie is sure. which birdie. Um, what I will say is um, I noticed that there was an upstart wrestling organization. Um, I saw some of the early PR. I found it fascinating because it was the first time that I had seen in 20 years a credible, um, a credible company that could scale. And what I mean by that is um, there's amazing wrestling organizations out there. They've got great TV deals, and they are really wonderful uh, and I love them and I, and I like watching them, uh, but what it really takes to compete at the highest level is a lot of capital. And so you really need a billionaire's bankroll, uh, in order to do it. So when I saw that the Khan family was involved and I saw who some of the early, uh, you know, wrestling talent that they were pulling, I was like, oh my God, if the creative is good, then this could be really serious because the capital is there, uh, and the creative and, and the and the talent is there. So, uh, reached out, uh, had some discussions over the course of some months, and we put a deal together. Um, and you know, they certainly fully they did their due diligence, uh, but I think at the end of the day, you know, it's tough to beat experience and i just don't know how you can uh necessarily go one on one with me and have more experience in this particular genre mm-hmm. um and so that was you know that helped and it did also help that you know my you know my business partners were super uh into it and so uh we were able to you know communicate our plan and and invest in doing this the right way but uh Yeah. And, and I got to tell you, I've been so delighted at the level of creative, like, it's really, really enjoyable. Like I watch it. And I feel like um, I feel like I'm kind of back in the golden era. Uh, So anyways, it's been great. And so
1: last year, uh, or earlier this year, it feels like last year, because, you know, <laughs> this year feels like it's gone on forever. Uh, toy Fair, you guys made a huge splash. Uh, it was great to see you know, the figures, the ring, the belt. Uh, a lot of the talent was out there at Toy Fair. I think that, you know, for, for, I, I think, you know, everybody seems so enthralled with, you know, being part of this amazing toy line, because even for a Cody Rhodes, uh, who has had figures before, right? This is now his company, you know, making figures and his his own version uh, of of a toy. And then you've got you know all this uh, up and coming talent that hasn't necessarily had figures before. Um, and then you've got, I mean, the the Jericho Bubbly set that you guys came up with is just
2: incredible. Uh, yeah, no, yeah. I mean, listen, Bravo. Magic and um, Greg and Kevin and. You know, there's a lot of passion that's going into this from the from the team, and uh, it's pretty pretty awesome.
1: And I think that uh, I mean, even just even the commercial that you guys just came out with, you know, really kind of hearkening back to those fun kind of classic commercials with the wrestlers and the figures, and then but kind of doing a modern approach to it. uh, It just seems like everything's coming together so well. Um, I'm sure that you're consistently getting asked, like, when's Orange Cassidy getting a toy? Uh, You know, because his popularity has just skyrocketed and to see him be like the number one uh, of all the aew wrestler t-shirts and and his towels selling amazingly at pro wrestling tees and everything is just incredible um obviously you know time to market for action figures is a huge it's just it's just part of the process right you guys start and it takes you know uh, from from concept to completion probably a year um, you know, to to get a a toy designed, manufactured. Um and coronavirus certainly has not helped anybody um, on that. Um, but I guess for, for those listening who don't really know kind of those stages, um what Coronavirus aside, as you guys look forward to the, the rollout of AEW, I know that originally you guys said every quarter you'd be dropping a new
2: assortment. Uh, is that still the plan or or yeah, what, what do the fans yeah. have to look forward to? Yeah, no, we're escalating the plan. So every two months, we'll we'll have a new wave every two months. We'll, we'll have six waves of the basic figs a year. And for us, the basic figs are really almost like ultimate figs, right? Because they have uh, that kind of articulation. Uh, but we're also going to be adding all kinds of additional ways to experience uh, AEW. We'll have some two-packs out there. We'll have probably some sort of retro series, although we're trying to figure out what that might look like. Um, We're going to be having, uh, you know, uh, authentic belts, die-cast stuff, just, you know, uh, battle packs. um, Many, many ways to experience AEW.
1: Well, thank you, Jeremy, so much for taking the time to speak with us today uh, about the past, uh, about collectibles and about the, uh, the future AEW line. Um, for those listening who want to know more about both uh, you and your passions and collections and also uh, staying up on the latest AEW releases, what is the best
2: way to go about doing that? So uh, three ways. So first of all, on a, if you're looking to follow me personally, it's at Jeremy Padauer, P-A-D-A-W-E-R, on Instagram or on Twitter, Twitter uh, at Jeremy Com, C-O-M. Um, but also you should follow Jazzwares. So at Jazzwares, the organization, J-A-Z-W-A-R-E-S. And that's how to follow me or
1: our company. And we will put all these links uh, in the uh, notes section for the podcast so everyone can find them easily. Awesome. And uh, like I said, today, out in Walmart, uh, if you can find it, or on walmart.com, you've got the first AEW action figures, so very awesome. excited to see how that uh, how that Not does. Um, I know that we... Uh, Uh, With uh, SDCC being this week, we're seeing crazy collectibles uh, coming in and selling out super fast. And uh, with all these different kind of variations on a theme with uh, the AEW figures, I'm sure that uh, some of these are going to go very fast and become collector's items quite quickly. So check those out. Um, And again, Jeremy, just want to thank
2: you for joining me today on Business of the Business. Thank you so much, man. Great job, Kevin. Good luck with all of your... With all of your uh, business pursuits and and here's to following your passions, everyone do it as much as you can.
0: If you're listening to this and you haven't visited LuchaCentral.com, it's time to do it.